Well, good morning, everyone. So, so good to be with all of you this morning as we continue our journey. And boy, what a journey it's been, right? I mean, uh, we have certainly, uh, as a church over the last decade plus, been traveling through the story of God's Word, starting in Genesis chapter 1 and working our way through, uh, watching God write His redemptive story, uh, the story that is about Him, the story that is about us, the story that is about Him and us. And, and it has been an incredible journey. Uh, the, the more recent part of the journey, meaning the last five years, um, we have been uh, going through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, kind of getting to know uh, the fullness of the redemptive story of God in Jesus Christ, who came to this planet. He is who he said he was. He did what he said he did. And we watched that unfold. And then we traveled into the book of Acts, a historical unpacking uh, of the early New Testament church, the, the, the great move of the redemptive story of God, the gospel, the redemptive reality of God, the gospel, and we've been watching that move through the known world from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and now to the ends of the earth. And on that journey to the ends of the earth, we have been following particularly a man named Paul with his comrades, different group of people depending on the journey he was in. Uh, we've been with Barnabas and with Mark and with Titus and with Timothy, kind of watching them all uh, come in and out of Paul's story. So uh, from a chronological standpoint, we are in the book of Acts. We have traveled with Paul uh, all the way through his first missionary journey into Galatia and that region. Then from Galatia, Paul went west, just north of Asia Minor, uh, through Bithynia, crossed the Aegean Sea, and went into Roman territory, uh, into Philippi, then Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. So we watched him travel down the Aegean Sea, going south in the western part, and planting churches as he went. In Corinth, he planted a church there, and because of the unique nature of that city, it was a city kind of like our Vegas today, but added to it, it was the land of opportunity, the land of promise, like our whole culture today. And so people went to Corinth to find their fortune, to find their fame, to make a life for themselves. So they were in pursuit of uh, that, 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 those things that would make self-significant. And so when Paul landed in Corinth, at first he just wanted to buzz through because it was a crazy place. And God said, hold, I have people here I want you to rescue because I'm going to rescue them and I'm going to use you. So Paul lingered and he didn't just linger for a short period of time. He lingered for a year and a half plus. Planted a church there, discipled a church there, built a church there, and it was beautiful. And then he left from Corinth. We went with Paul as he crossed back over the Aegean Sea, heading east now. He went back through uh, into Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor. And, and he's been hanging out in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, remember, he got word that things were going very badly in Corinth because some people had come up from Jerusalem, some false apostles, and they had convinced the Corinthians that Paul uh, was a fool and was trying to misuse them and that they were, in fact, who the Corinthians should follow. And in so doing, the Corinthians' behavior reflected a deep change in their hearts. And so Paul wrote a first letter from Ephesus to Corinth. It was an extremely corrective letter, uh, basically uh, going through the behaviors that Paul had heard about and saying, how is it that these things can be true of you when you follow Jesus? It wasn't 
Since you follow Jesus, you ought to behave this way to prove to him that you love him. It was, if you know Jesus, this, this just doesn't reconcile. It's, it's like you're saying you believe one thing and then living as though it isn't true, as we often do. And he used that letter to demonstrate what it ought to look like, not what it is looking like in Corinth. Then he got word that things were going even worse. He wrote a very severe letter that, as you know, we don't have access to. And that letter, he almost regretted writing because it was so severe, it grieved the church in Corinth. And then he, uh, Titus, who he had sent with that second letter, never showed back up in Ephesus. So he figured they probably, they probably stoned him and buried him in the backyard. So he took off to go and try to find Titus because he was worried. And he went up into Macedonia and there he found Titus. And Titus brought great word that the severe letter had had impact on the church of Corinth and that they were repentive and that they were longing to see Paul again. So Paul is now preparing for a third visit because he had made a second visit between the first and second letter and that's why the severe letter was written because after that second visit it went badly and so now he's preparing for a, th- a third visit and he's just written to them from Macedonia, Second Corinthians, the third letter he's writing. We have had the privilege of traveling through that letter, one of the most beautiful unpackings of the grace of God that he has lavished upon us and the grace that is now ours to lavish upon one another and upon the world. So grab your Bibles because we are together going to take a very quick look at what we have traveled through in 2 Corinthians because today we actually close out 2 Corinthians and watch what Paul leaves the church in Corinth with and leaves us with as he closes this beautiful letter out. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter one. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, it is page 1066, so 1066, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter one. Now, we're gonna buzz through really, really fast here, so, so jump with me here. You can just listen or you can, you can see the verses as we go. It's up to you, but it's important that we visualize what's happened so that when you go back and read this book in your future again, that you have a good construct in which to function, understanding the context and beauty of this book. So take a look at what Paul does here. Uh, the greeting in the very beginning, and then he remember he, he says in verse two, grace to you and peace from God. God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writing to a people group that have deeply hurt him, deeply stabbed him in the back, a people group he ought to abandon, and yet he begins with grace and peace to you from God, reminding us that we are capable of giving grace to one another even when pain is present because God's grace is bigger than the pain people can cause us and the pain we can cause people. And so the first grace we have to offer is not our own grace to another, it is God's grace in us to others. And so Paul says, I may not have grace of my own, but God's grace to you, because God's grace is that big. And then as Paul unpacks in chapter one, the God of all comfort, remember, uh, he talks about God being our comforter, not only uh, in, in the fact that he relieves us from affliction, but that he is actually the comforter within affliction. And we unpack the beauty of that, just demonstrating God's great grace to us, not just as a single moment in the receiving of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but in the dailiness of the anxiety 
anxieties and realities and afflictions we face. His grace is an ongoing thing every moment of every day, not a one-time thing in receiving the gospel. And then Paul travels on uh, through that, and and look what he says uh, in verse 12. He says, um, but by the, by the grace of God, uh, we, and, and supremely toward you, he talks about this idea uh, that they behave toward them in grace, and this was by the grace of God. So now Paul reminds us, and then unpacks for the rest of chapter one and the early part of chapter two, since God's given us his grace, we now have God's grace to give, and in response to God's grace given to us, I, Paul, now give you my grace also. So it's beautiful. God's grace to us, God's grace through us, our grace to one another in response to God's grace to us. And then in uh, chapter two, starting in verse five, he calls the church of Corinth to respond in the same way he responded to them. He now basically says, since God's given me grace and I give you God's grace through me and I give you my grace because of God's grace, now you too have God's grace. So give God's grace to those around you and give your grace to them also. And so we as a church are called into this. This is not for church leadership. This is for church, right? So we're all in the same boat. And then we see what Paul does next, which is beautiful. He starts unpacking where this grace comes from and the extent of this grace. And he talks about the triumph we have in Christ. And he says, we are the aroma of Christ to God. And he talks about the victory march that we have won despite what circumstances try to tell us every day. That in the end of this human story that you and I have on this planet, that is a vapor of a story, in the end, he will make all things new. He will finish the work he began. We have won. And he says that. And we go, yes. No wonder we have grace. Are the circumstances dark, hard, and tough? Sometimes they are. We have still won. And then, in chapter three, he unpacks this new covenant that we have in Christ, and he demonstrates to us this incredible reality. Look at verse seven of chapter three. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And then look just at verse 10. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Paul here unpacking for us that the glory of the story of God in the early uh, New Test- uh, Old Testament and the rest of the Old Testament was glorious. The law is good, but the, the covenant of Christ so surpasses it that it, what is good even does not look good. And the glory of what we are recipients of. We are recipients of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Recipients of his life, death, and resurrection. Recipients of his soul rescue. Recipients of his future redeemed for us. Recipients of his purpose restored to us. We are recipients of things unimaginable. And then in response to that, in response to that, chapter four, the light of the gospel. We do not lose heart, he says. Look at verse six. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has shone his light in us. 
And we are light in Christ now. Is there anything better? And in response to this, verse seven, but we have this treasure. What treasure? The gospel. In jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And Paul begins a beautiful unpacking for uh, chapter, the rest of chapter four and chapter five of who we are in the story. And he says, you are not just recipients of this gospel, you are participants in it. And yes, you are weak. Yes, your bodies and your flesh and your minds are weak. Yes, you won't get it right all the time. God never needed you to. He never sat around saying, as soon as you pull it together, then I'll use you. No, he said, no, no, no. You see, it is in your very weakness that I am shown strong, God says. I have placed the light of God into vessels of clay, fragile, weak vessels, and there I will make myself known. And we're like, we? We are part of this? Not just recipients, but participants? Yes. And then chapter five, the beautiful chapter of who we are in Christ. And look at this, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he unpacks that we are not just recipients of the reconciliation of God and mankind, but we are participants in that redemptive story, reconciling people to God by carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way we live, in the way we speak, and in sharing the gospel with others. And then in chapter 6, he travels through this beautiful reality of how this unpacks and how this unfolds. And then he talks about the temple of the living God and he says, look, though you live in the world, though you live in the world, do not live as the world, do not live with the world in the things of the world, but live in the world as light in the darkness, as salt to bring life to the world. And then in chapter seven, in verse eight, he says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, that was the severe letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And Paul transitions from this beautiful unpacking of the this is for all of us and gets personal with the church in Corinth. I'm excited to come back. I was regretful when I wrote that severe letter, but I'm not regretful because it did its work in your hearts and you repented. Repentance is so critical because it causes us to go, oh my gosh, I blew it. I'm so sorry. And I'm so grateful that you repented. And then Paul gets super personal for the rest of this letter. For the rest of this letter, he talks about some of the obedience he wants to call them back into in their generosity because they made promises about money they would put aside for the church in Jerusalem. And they had abandoned that promise because they got all messed up in their, in their thinking and he was calling them back to obedience in that. Then he called them back into authority under Paul because he said, you have bought into an authority that is a false authority and they are leading you to 
to a false Jesus and a false gospel and it is bad for you. And so Paul calls them back into authority. We see chapter eight and nine on generosity, chapter 10 and 11 on authority and the rest of 11 uh, and even 12, Paul is boasting even though he hates to boast and he says, I'm boasting because I must because I must win you back so that I can lead you to Jesus. Because these false prophets, these quote unquote super apostles, they are leading you falsely. And then Paul walks in chapter 12 through that beautiful passage about his weakness and reminds us again, folks in a culture that keeps telling us as the Corinthian culture did, if you are strong enough, then you will survive. If you are strong enough, then you will lead. If you are strong enough, then you will be successful. If you are strong enough, then you will do it. Never show your weakness. Never live in your weakness. Play to your strengths. Undermine your weaknesses. And Paul writes and says these words. Verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. We must embrace who we are so that we can embrace the beauty of Christ in us. We are not strong. He is strong. And he is in us so that when we are weak, he shows himself strong to us first and then to the world through us. And then... In chapter 12, verse 11, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. Paul writes a beautiful little closer to the letter, kind of the summing up of all the details in the letter going, you should have commended me. You should have stuck with me. You should have seen, but you forced me to do this because you bought into falseness. Now I have to act this way. I have to step in harshly with you. I have to be authoritarian with you. I have to do these things because you need it. And this was his little thing, the kind of the why at the end of the three letters. Some harsh letters came your way. This one a little harsh too, but here's why because I love you, because I love you, because you matter to me, and it is for your building up that I've done all this. Take a look at this. Chapter 12, verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Whatever we do in Christ, we do for the building up of others. If we do not do it for the building up of others, we ought not to be doing it. Period. That's what he says. And whatever I've done, I've done for you to build you up. It may not always feel like you're being built up by the brothers and the sisters, but if they are in Christ, then they are to build you up and you are to recognize that that is what we do together. And then, remember verse 10, he writes these words. For this reason, I write these things. While I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. There it is, folks. Now you know why the letter was written. Now you know why we are to do anything we do with one another. That's it. And now we're ready. Are you ready? 
Now we get to read the last few words of this letter. Now we get to step in because now we can understand the beauty of what he's about to write. I have found with my kids, with my wife, with humans in general, after you've dealt with a lot of complex stuff, you've worked through a lot of things, the best thing to do is to summarize it all. To kind of bring it down to a real clear, like here's, here's, here's the point, here's two or three things to remember because us human beings, God says we're like sheep. We eat, we walk, sometimes off cliffs. We don't pay much attention, we forget quickly. And just because a wolf ate one of our friends last night, it doesn't mean we'll remember that the wolf is bad today, right? So we need things boiled down and simplified so that we can hold on to them and we can remember them. And what Paul is about to do is extraordinary. Do not think of this as an ending to one letter because it is not. It is the ending to three letters. It is the ending to a long and hard and tedious journey with a people group in Corinth that have stabbed him in the back, hurt his feelings, abandoned him, totally blown it. This is the last little thing he has to say that we have any record of where he will say, now everything I've done, everything I've said, every minute I've spent with you, every word I've written on every piece of paper to you, here's where it ends. Here's what you ought to remember if you forget everything else I've told you. Does this sound important? Because it's important. And if I haven't made it sound important, then pay attention because it's really important. Finally, brothers, that's important. Let's stop there. <laughs> two things matter about these two words. Both of them matter. This word finally is a way that Paul will often take an entire complex reality and say all I really want you to remember about all of this is this right here. Finally. And this finally is a big one because this is the one that it says, okay, Paul, what are you gonna say to these guys to wrap it all up? Spirit of God, what do you want to leave with them to wrap this all up? Finally. And then the next word, listen to this, this is so cool. Brothers. It, it, it's brothers and sisters is what it is. It was, a, it was an endearing term and, and it, it meant family. It meant belonging. And you will notice if you go back that Paul in the early parts of his letters called the Corinthians brothers. Then at a certain point in his letters, he only called those who had repented brothers and the others unrepented. He didn't call them brothers. You with me? So he was kind of going, you unrepented crazy people. I don't even know. I don't even know if we're a family. And this is the first time in this third letter in a long time that he calls the entire church, everyone in it, brothers. Do you know how hopeful that statement is? It's just a reminder, folks, that the circumstances of our life will often try to tell us that there is no redemption in this circumstance. There is no win. There is no repentance. This person, there is no hope for them. This story, there is no redoing it. it I, th th I'm done. This one is finished. And Paul writes, finally, brothers. What a hopeful statement that when I come for my third visit, Paul is saying here, I anticipate 
that we will engage as family. Folks, considering the gospel, we ought to have a very large view of what can be redeemed in each other. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Rejoice. And we could stop there. Rejoice. Paul will write to the church in Philippi later on, much, much later on in his journey. And in chapter four of the book of Philippians, he will write these beautiful words that you ought to memorize if you have not. Philippians chapter four, starting in verse four, and it says this, rejoice. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious for anything, but in all things by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God in the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Here he does it again in, in the very ending of 2 Corinthians, the end of three letters in a long, hard journey with the church in Corinth. He says this finally, brothers, rejoice. Let me just touch on this for a second. I think we believe that to rejoice is a response to circumstances that are worthy of rejoicing in. But biblically, that would be completely incorrect. Rejoicing is a choice we make because of a knowledge we have of things yet to come and things that are true and things that have happened that show us that we have every reason to rejoice. Be of good cheer is another way of putting this. Be of good cheer. Be because your life is good? Pfft, no. Your life may be good. It may not be. If you're living missionally, it's likely not to be for large periods of time during your, planet on this, your journey on this planet. But rejoice. Rejoice for your soul is rescued. Rejoice for your future is redeemed. Rejoice for your purpose is restored. Rejoice for you're a recipient of the gospel and a participant in it. Rejoice. Rejoice. Be of good cheer. Aim for restoration. I, I, I love the way Paul puts this because he doesn't say restore all things because that's not our job. Can I just tell you guys? There are things on this planet you cannot restore. What? No, no, legitimately, there are things on this planet you cannot restore. But he will restore them. He may not restore them in the way we think and on, in the period we want and even in this lifetime. But this is his promise. I will make all things new. He will restore. But you cannot always. So here's what Paul says. Aim to restore. Now that gives us an extraordinary and beautiful thing to shoot for because it means that we should never determine that something is not able to be restored because he said just keep aiming to restore it and then one day die. Just keep aiming to restore it and then die. And when you die, I will restore what you were not able to. But, but your job is to keep aiming to restore it.
That's it. Together we keep aiming to restore it. Here's another way of saying it. Keep things in good repair. Keep things in good repair. When you notice little stuff with the brothers and the sisters, deal with them. Don't be stupid. Don't let things linger. Don't get bitter. Don't let things, I don't want to offend. It's not worth it. It's always worth it because we need to keep things in good repair before they get so badly out of repair that the restoration process feels impossible. Aim for restoration. (laughs) Agree with one another. The God of the impossible, right? Agree with one another. What a terrible, terrible, terrible thing the church has done over the last 2,000 years. We have forgotten how to be agreeable. We love finding differences and fighting over them. We ought to all care about truth and then we ought to all be agreeable. This isn't always agree because that's not gonna happen because sometimes you're wrong and I'm not gonna agree with you and sometimes I'm wrong and you ought not to agree with me. If somebody's wrong, the Bible isn't saying just agree with them, it's cool. What the Bible is saying is be agreeable. In other words, don't fight. Don't fight. Don't bicker. Don't get all bent out of shape. Be agreeable for goodness sake. Be kind. Get along with one another. Even if somebody's wrong, it doesn't mean you have to be unkind. I I tell my kids all the time, it's more important to be kind than to be right. What? Truth matters. Sure, truth matters. But we're humans, and being kind can be done even when somebody doesn't live in truth. Being kind matters. Be agreeable. Live in peace. That's kind of like the be agreeable. Stop fighting. If you are fighting with one another, here's what Paul's saying. Can I sum up three letters in a very, very long ride with the church in Corinth? Let me sum it up. Stop fighting, please. Just stop fighting. I've said this, in fact, in preaching through this letter in a beautiful section where we talked about the enemy of God. And I said this, when we fight each other, we fight for the enemy. When we fight each other, we fight for the enemy and we fight against God. And when we fight for each other, we fight for God and against the enemy of God. We need to quit fighting. Are you fighting with someone, your spouse? your kids, your parents, with each other, then start the journey of stopping. Well, no, it ain't that easy. They've hurt me for a long time. I am really sorry. I'm sure they have. No, legitimately, I have seen some hurt, man. I've seen humans hurt each other badly. And I know it hurts. But if you know Jesus, then you are full of the Spirit of God. And you and I can do this. We just have to decide that this is the way we're gonna live and we start living that way and we strive toward it because he just told us, listen man, do it this way. If you forget everything else, do it this way and look at this. And the God of love and peace will be with you. You can't do this without him and when you do this, His presence will be so tangible in your words and your actions and your life, you won't know what to do with yourself. Guys, we read this stuff, and here, sitting here, we're like, oh, yes, yes! And then we leave here, and it's Monday morning, 
and we're in traffic, and we're saying those words we ought not to say, and we're thinking those thoughts we ought not to think, and we get to work, and the jerk who's trying to take our job, we hate him, we hate her, and by the time we get home, we've remembered what our spouse has done to us for 23 years, and we're ticked off, and our 18-year-old walks in the door and treats us like we be- we're nothing, and we're like, what have I done? I get it. And then this becomes a nothing to us. But we must stand in this every day. Do you see now why he says, place this thing in your hearts, this word of God, memorize it, think on it, meditate on it, day and night, you will forget, as will I. But we cannot, because this is our life. And when it is our life, the God of love and peace will be with us. Meaning it'll be felt. He's always with us, but it'll be felt. And now look at this, I love this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay, we don't have to go around kissing each other. Um, this was a cultural thing, but, 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 but here's the deal. This is what matters, and we need to figure out in our culture what this is, okay? The holy kiss was a formal greeting that you did at a family reunion to say, though we may not have seen each other for a while, I know that you belong to me and I belong to you. It's family, folks. And what he's saying to the church is, when you see each other, you make sure you remind each other, we are family. So we treat each other like family. We are not strangers. I may not know you, but because you belong to Jesus and I belong to Jesus, we belong to each other. And so this this is a, every time you see each other, remember who you are, greet each other as family. All the saints greet you, Paul says. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Do you know that this is the only time in any letter Paul writes that he ends his greeting blessing using the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is why I believe that this ending is not about one letter, but it is about three letters and a very long, hard journey with the church in Corinth, where he's saying, listen, the whole gospel, the whole story of God, the wholeness of God must be yours every day if you are going to overcome the culture in which you live, Church of Corinth, Church of America. Remember what God has done for you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, together as one, have given you their whole heart. God has given you his whole heart. When Christ died on the cross and was separated from the Father, you understand that God, God tore himself apart. Let sin tear him in two for you and I. The father and the son were separated. You may as well take your body, tie two ropes to either arm and rip it apart. That is what happened that day. It was not a father watching his son suffer while he sat on his throne happy or sad about his son. It was God ripping in two. And here Paul says, I know what I've asked of you is big. May the blessing of our God be with you, father, son, and spirit. Remember who you are. Remember who he is. You and I have this thing called a bucket list now. I don't know who came up with it. 
It's called, I think it was in a movie. And then we were all like, whoa, cool, bucket list. Let's make bucket lists. You have a bucket list. You may not call it a bucket list, but you have a bucket list. It's things you want. Some of them are geographical. Oh gosh, I want to see Israel. I know, so do I. Get in line. Um, <laughs> oh, I want to see Seattle. Oh, I want to go to the Caribbean. Oh, there's some really cool places to see on planet Earth. I want to skydive. I, I want to, uh, yeah, uh, those are good too. I want to write a book by the time I'm 50. Yep, great, fantastic. I want to hit this point in my career. Oh my gosh, I hear it all the time now. Oh my, uh, that's on my bucket list. Oh my gosh, that's on my bucket list. I love bucket lists. Bucket lists are tangible little ways to make our dreams tangible and, and, and somewhat attainable, somewhat. We make big bucket lists. And you know what we do with bucket lists? Secretly, we think about those bucket lists a lot, and then we kind of secretly work toward them, don't we? We kind of hope that somebody will leave us a large inheritance so we can go do our bucket lists. <laughs> yeah. We kind of kind of go, oh my, my gosh, what if I get that giant bonus and then I can't, and, and that's okay. And then when we get those things, we, we follow those things, which is good. Nothing in that is bad. But do but you know what's crazy to me? What's crazy to me is that what we chase after, what we long for, what we hope for, what we dream about at night, the dreams and hopes we have, how rarely, how rarely do they sound like this? God, it is my hope, my dream, my bucket list that today I would be of good cheer, keep things in good repair, keep my spirits up for I have reason to. Think in harmony and unity with those who know you and be agreeable because you have rescued my soul, redeemed my future, and restored my purpose. And today, if I can live in that then I will have done my bucket list. I think that this closing matters enough that we ought to make this our bucket list. Really. Because what I love about it is, this is not what you ought to be today. It's what you get to strive after tomorrow and the next day and the day after and today. So that someday, when you're old and have lived long, that you will be able to say this, there were some days of my life where I was agreeable and of good cheer. <laughs> I kept my spirits up. I kept things in good repair. And my thinking was in harmony with the brothers and sisters in Christ. There were some days that were like that. Oh, that that may be true of us. Folks, Paul is asking us through the Holy Spirit to take this seriously. So I'm gonna ask you, Go memorize this last two verses of 2 Corinthians. Make it your bucket list. And let's see what it looks like when the God of love and peace is with us because we are with him. Let's pray. God, thank you for the extraordinary beauty of the letters that we just got to travel through. Thank you for speaking to Paul through Paul to write your words for us through a human interaction between Paul and the church in Corinth. God, again, I'm just so grateful that your declared word to us is not some set of truths that live transcendent of our human experience, but they are born in the fires of our human experience. 
that 2 Corinthians is such a, a letter of difficult human relationship and yet every word matters and every word is beautiful because every word shows us how you are with us in the mess, in our weakness. So God, now as jars of clay, vessels of weakness, we come to you. You know our pains, you know our hurts, you know how hard this human relationship thing is and yet it seems, God, that you are confident that by your spirit in us, we can and should strive after human relationships that are in harmony, peaceable, agreeable, producing good cheer, unity, and like-mindedness, having the same love and purpose. All of this because you have given us something to rally around that is beyond human understanding beyond human possibility, beyond imagination. The gospel that you came to rescue our souls, redeem our future, and restore our purpose. May we live deeply in that and live out of that every day. May we be of good cheer, not because we have circumstantial reason to be of good cheer, but because we have you, Jesus. And out of that, may we live together in this life for you and for each other. And may we defy what the enemy wants for us. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your precious name. Amen.